Good morning, church. So, as most of you know, Jen and I have five children. I'm trying to scroll all the way back up here. Have five children. Um, and if you spent any time with us, you've probably picked up on the fact that uh, our children share some of the same characteristics and attributes as us. Um, like if you were to see a picture of Jen when she was a little girl and then you were to look at Zachariah, if it weren't for the dress and the ponytail, you'd say, that's the same person. Um, or you might notice that three of the kids have my same eye color. Or that Luke is an extrovert like his mother. Um, just the other day, Aubrey was teasing Aiden that his legs are now officially as hairy as dad's. Um, but one distinct thing about our home is that a minimum two or three times a week, uh, you'll hear one of the kids bust out into a Scottish accent, and that's because my mom's side of the family is Scottish, and we're proud of our accents, and our kilts, and the movie Braveheart, and the fact that we invented golf. I'm sorry, Aubrey. She asked me not to do that. And each of you could tell similar stories about your families. Now, some of these characteristics are passed down through genetics. Some are learned as our children watch us and listen to us. They pick up some of our personality traits, some of our quirks. But one thing I could never say about any one of my children is that they are my exact image. But as we'll see in our passage today, God the Father and Jesus, while they are distinct in person, function, and role, they are identical in nature and in being. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15 uh, through 23 will be where we are today. Just some context while you're turning there. Um, also, I think someone made some more copies of the notes back there if you need it. Um, some context while y'all are turning there. The culture that the Colossians were living in was one of Greek influence. Pagan philosophy and Gnosticism saturated the culture. But there was also a large Jewish population uh, in Colossae. And with that came the influence of the Judaizers. Uh, Judaizers were a sect of professing Jewish Christians who believed that all Christians, even the Gentiles, must live like a Jew, especially according to their customs and their traditions, and especially uh, the law demanding circumcision. 
Now, Paul received a report from uh, Epaphras that the Colossian church was being unsettled and in danger of being deluded by false teachers bringing such ideas and philosophies into the church. Our modern American culture has its own philosophies and traditions. There are countless ideas about who God is, about how we are to live, about what you should say and not say, what you should do and not do. Our culture makes demands of us. It demands that we bow the knee to things like choice and abortion, to things like LGBTQ rights, things like egalitarianism, sexual freedom, all things that promote human autonomy. The culture has sought to throw off the cords of God and declare themselves God. They, however, have no basis to claim this moral and religious authority. The sum of all their religion is disorder, and it's ultimately death. Now, coming out of our ecclesiology series, we've seen that Christ, as head of the church, has made clear how the church is to be ordered, how it's to function, and what its purpose is. We see also in the scripture that he has specific commands for how the family is to be ordered and how it's to function as well. He's determined roles and requirements for elders and deacons, members, husbands, wives, and children. And Christ is able to determine these things because he created them and he rules over them. In fact, Christ created all things. And he alone has the right to determine how the world and everything in it operates. My main point today is that those that behold the glory of Christ will be transformed by the glory of Christ. Before we read our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come to you humbly today. expressing our, our need and dependence on you. We ask that um, this morning that Jesus Christ would be magnified, that he would be exalted, that we would get a clearer picture of who he is, and that the result of that would be that our lives would be changed, our hearts would be changed, our affections would be changed, and that we would live lives of faithful obedience to you. The Lord be with us here this morning. Amen. Hopefully you found your way to Colossians 1.15. It reads this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, 
and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. My first point today is that Christ is preeminent over all creation. We read in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now we know from the creation account in Genesis that mankind was created in the image of God. And this doesn't speak about our physical bodies or our appearance but of some of that characters, characteristics and attributes that God has given us that he didn't give to any other creature. He's given us intelligence. He's given us wisdom, creativity, the charge to take dominion and to be fruitful. He's given us the capacity to love. This all speaks of a unity and relationship that we have with our creator. He created us to know him. And as we reflect his character and attributes to glorify him. We also learn in Genesis that man fell into sin. And because of this, our ability to reflect the truth, goodness, and beauty of God has been marred. Our relationship has been broken. Fellowship broken. Our capacity to fulfill our purpose has been destroyed. But even in our unfallen state, we were merely reflections of God's image. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So how does this differ? Well, as Riley read earlier in Hebrews 1.3, And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. See, we were merely created to reflect, but Jesus is the radiance of the very glory of God. He perfectly shines forth and puts on display God's glory, and he is the exact representation of God's nature, manifest God to us so that we may see and apprehend his glory. Jesus isn't a reflector. He is the radiator of the glory of God. The glory of God proceeds from his shared essence and nature with the Father and the Spirit. And that's why he can say with the Father, let us create man in our image. And that's why he can say to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4:6, for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is very God of very God. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus reveals to us the invisible God. And as we continue in verse 15, we see that Jesus is also the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn doesn't mean, as the Jehovah's Witnesses have claimed, first created. That's made clear simply by continuing to read the next verse. Verse 16 begins, For by him all things were created. God the Son created everything in existence. He himself is not a created being. Firstborn here means that he has the right to and inheritance of everything in all creation. Everything that belongs to his Father. What belongs to the Father? Everything in all creation. So what belongs to the Son? Everything in all creation is his. As we continue into verse 16, Paul's going to show us the scope of the authority of the firstborn. And it's all-encompassing. We see in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Everything in the invisible or spiritual realm is His. Everything in the physical is His. In Genesis 1, when we see God creating the heavens and the earth, initially the earth was formless and void. Formlessness speaks of confusion, chaos, and disorder. But God the Son takes this formless and chaotic state and he brings order to it. He has the power and authority to take that which was in disarray and put it into order. He makes the ugly beautiful. He set in place all the laws that everything must abide by, and at the end of each of the six days of creation, he declared it good. From the most majestic mountain ranges to the vast plains, from the immense and powerful seas to trickling streams, from the far reaches of the universe with all its galaxies to the microscopic world of atoms, particles, viruses, and bacteria, it's all His. And thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, whether in heaven or on earth, were created through Him and for Him, supreme over every heavenly and earthly authority. From the angelic host, which right now is in ceaseless flight around the throne of God, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. To the demonic hordes of Satan in sinful rebellion, they all belong to Jesus. From the greatest kings, pharaohs, Caesars, or presidents, down to the poorest beggar, they're all his. Jesus made it all. Jesus owns it all. And all of it was created for His purposes and to give Him glory. 
Every creature, all of nature, every human being, along with every institution and creation of man, is subject to the lordship of Christ. It all exists for and is to be used for His glory. For anyone in this world to presume to say, I don't need your Jesus. Or to say, keep your Jesus and your religion to yourself. Not only the height of arrogance and foolishness, but ultimately it's treasonous. When the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, Rome took it as a threat to the authority of Caesar. And they were right. Because Jesus as Lord has all authority. And Caesar must answer to him. That's why the psalmist can say in Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 and 12, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. Continuing in verse 17, we now see that he is before all things, meaning that Jesus Christ is the eternally pre-existent one. John 1, 1 and 2 tells us that in the beginning was the, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Psalm 102.25 says, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. The Son was there in the beginning with God, and was himself God. And he laid the foundation of everything. Not only that, but we see that in Him, all things hold together. Not only did He create all things, but in Him all things hold together or consist. And contrary to the belief of the deists, God didn't just create everything and then walk away from it, just leaving everything to run its course. But Jesus, right now, is literally sustaining all the laws of physics. Right now, he's keeping gravity doing what gravity does. He keeps the planets, the sun, moon, and stars in their place. He's keeping every cell in your body together at all times. And he doesn't take time off from doing all these things. This shows us the providence of Christ. Now, in our middle school group, we were studying the providence of God before the ecclesiology series, and we stopped to, to follow along and discuss ecclesiology. But in that, in that study, our definition for God's providence is this, that God is present and active in all creation. His eye is watching. His hand is working to uphold and govern all creation, to fulfill all His purposes for His glory and for the good of His children. See, our God is not distant. He's not ignorant of what's going on in the world or in your life. 
He is intimately involved in every aspect of creation. He holds it all together. Again, as the writer of Hebrews says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, I want us to pause and think about this for a second. I think sometimes when we come to these passages, we, we too quickly pass over these sorts of descriptions of God. He is holy. He is powerful. I think sometimes we take for granted His infinite power. His majestic glory. We need to take time to truly see and behold who God is. Truly think for a moment what this passage means. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the creator of all things, He speaks a word and the universe comes into existence instantaneously. He speaks and the universe is upheld by His word. And this same God speaks to us in His Word so that we might know Him. That's incredible. Think about that for a moment. In these first two verses, we've seen the preeminence of Christ over all creation. Now we'll see His preeminence over the new creation, which is point two. Christ is preeminent over the new creation, the church. Verse 18 tells us, and he is head of the body, the church. Now over the past few months, we've had a focused study on the church, what it is, how it's to be ordered, what its purpose is. As Brian stated early in that study, The church matters because the glory of God matters. There is a structure and purpose to the body of Christ. And Jesus, as head of the church, has the right and authority to declare who we are, what we are to do, and for what purpose. If you all would, look forward with me into chapter 2 of Colossians, verses 18 and 19. which says this, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason in his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. What I want us to see here is that Christ as head not only rules over the church, but He is the source of all growth and nourishment of the church. And only by holding on to Him, only by clinging to Him and Him alone, will this local body 
ever grow and mature to fulfill its calling and purpose. In Him and Him alone, we will be nourished, satisfied, filled, empowered, equipped, established to accomplish the mission of being disciples with a passion for making disciples of all nations. And only by clinging to Him will we withstand the false teaching and counterfeit religion of the world. So not only is He the head of the body of the church, but He says that He is also the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Now the beginning of what? We've already seen that He is before all things. And I don't think beginning here is once again speaking of His pre-existence. But instead of Christ as the beginning or source of a new creation, and I think that's made clear as we continue. Jesus, as He is the firstborn over all creation, now He is the firstborn from the dead. He wasn't the first to die. He wasn't even the first to be raised from the dead. Jesus himself raised several people from the dead. And these were merely resuscitations because they all went on to die again. He was, however, the first to rise, never to die again. And in the resurrection of Jesus, there was something altogether new. No human being had ever been raised to die again until that day. And the effect of the resurrection goes far beyond just the raising of Christ himself. His resurrection accomplished a new beginning. It initiated a new creation. You and I, if we are in Christ, are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, as we discussed earlier, God the Son created everything and declared it good. He brought order out of the disorder. And the crowning glory of His creation was man, because man was created in the image of God, created to reflect His glory. But through the fall, sin and death entered the world, and our capacity to fulfill that that purpose was destroyed. With Adam's sin, disorder once again entered entered the scene. And the wages of that sin was that all men were condemned to die. And so it was for thousands of years. But Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Through His resurrection, death was given its fatal blow. Not only is Christ preeminent over all creatures and things, but now He is preeminent over death. And He is the source of new life a new creation, a new humanity. 
Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, which is in the context of the resurrection of Christ as, and, and the fact that He is the first fruits of the resurrection. In that context, we read, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. We who are in Christ follow Him in the resurrection, And bear his image. As the firstborn from the dead, Jesus has the right to and inheritance of all who follow him in the resurrection. And this was necessary so that he would come to have first place in everything. The disorder, the chaos that sin brought into the creation would begin to be reordered in the new creation. Romans 8, 19 through 23 tells us that the creation itself anxiously longs and eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. And that the creation, because of the fall, was subjected to futility. Creation itself will also one day be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation groans and suffers waiting for that day when it will see redemption in its fullness. There comes a day when everything will be made new. Now verse 19 For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of God to dwell in Him. What does this mean, all the fullness of God to dwell in Him? Well, the very next chapter, chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And a few verses prior to that, in verse 3, it says, In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It pleased the Father that all the fullness of His deity and all the treasures of His wisdom and knowledge would dwell in the human body of Jesus Christ. And God was pleased by this because this was His plan to make all things right in His creation. God had to take on human flesh. Through the God-man, full of wisdom and knowledge, all things would be reconciled to God. Now thus far, we've beheld the glory of who Christ is. And now we'll come to point three, which is the glory of what He's done. Verse 20 reads, And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. See, in the shedding of His blood, the preeminent Lord of the universe accomplished reconciliation. Reconciliation of all things, whether in heaven or on earth. But in order for this reconciliation to occur, 
peace had to be made between a sinful humanity and a holy God. This peace was made by the atoning blood of the cross of Christ. Blood had to be shed. And the sacrifice of bulls and goats was insufficient to cleanse our sins. But the sacrifice of the sinless God-man was accepted by the Father. You can see Hebrews 9, 12-14 for a reference there. But Paul says, all things are reconciled through Christ. See, the blood of the Lamb has cleansed all who by faith have believed and confessed that Jesus is Lord and Savior, so we now have peace with God. But what about those who die in their sin? What about Satan and his demons? How are they reconciled? Are they reconciled? Well, in Revelation chapter 5, we read of the scene in heaven where God is seated on his throne and holding a scroll with seven seals. And an angel proclaims, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John weeps loudly because of this. But one of the elders says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And when John turns to see the lion, he instead sees a lamb standing as though slain. And the lamb takes the scroll from the father. And the angels and the elders sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And as we read on, we see that what is contained in the scroll is God's decree of judgment upon his enemies. With the breaking of each seal, justice is poured out on the wicked. Jesus alone is qualified to dispense this justice because he was slain. The shedding of his blood and his subsequent resurrection gave him this authority. So reconciliation in this understanding means that all accounts will be settled. See, our record of debt was nailed to the tree covered by the blood of Christ. But for the enemies of God, that debt is outstanding and will be paid by the dispensing of Jesus' just judgment. All things, every enemy, will be put into its proper place. No more rebellion. No more mocking God. No more mocking the things of God and the people of God. They will be put in their proper place. Satan, demons, and all unbelievers will receive justice. And disorder, once again, will be brought to order. 
continuing in verse 21 and 22. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. See, by all rights, we should have received this same sentence of condemnation. But praise God for His amazing grace. By the death of His Son, we have been cleansed. We have been washed. We have been redeemed from the slave market of sin. We've been declared righteous. We've been adopted as sons. We are heirs. We have access to the throne of grace. We get the righteousness of Jesus. And best of all, church, we get Jesus. Why did he do all this? And that brings us to point four. Beholding his glory will transform you. Continuing in verse 23, we see why he did all this. Paul says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He created us for this, to be with him, to know him in a relationship that's unhindered by sin to be holy, to be like Him, reflecting His truth, goodness, and beauty, reflecting His holiness. See, sin through the first man wrecked what was once good, but now we're being prepared as a bride for her husband. Spotless, blameless, pure, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He's doing all this for your sanctification, for your holiness, so that you may be presented before Him holy, pure, spotless. As we continue in verse 23, we see, if indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, how are we to understand Paul here when he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel? We shouldn't so quickly brush over such a statement. 
Paul has a purpose in writing it. It is a warning. And it's an exhortation. There are some within the church professing Christ who are unstable, who are shaky, who are shifting from the hope of the gospel. The philosophies, tradition, and wisdom of the world have made inroads into their minds and hearts. Or perhaps like one of Paul's one-time companions, Demas, they've fallen in love with the sinful things of the world. Now those in this position are either bound to go out from us because they were never truly of us, Or, they are truly Christ's, in which case, they will respond to the voice of their shepherd. Whether unregenerate or regenerate, this is a frightening place to be. If you find yourself upon this shaky ground, the answer is the same for you in either situation. Look to the preeminent Lord. Repent, trust in Him and Him alone. Cling to Him every moment of every day of your life. And as you do this, know that it is by His grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Christ alone, that you are able to stand. He will strengthen you to walk in faith, but you must walk. You must fight the fight of faith. Trusting that it is He who gives you the victory. You must run the race looking to Christ as the one who has gone before you. You must put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry. Excuse me, I skipped ahead. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry along with anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, and stop lying to one another, knowing that it is Christ who cleansed you. And you must put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You must put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, you must put on love, which binds everything together. You, church, must do these things if you are to endure, stable, and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard. These are all commands, many of which are contained in this very letter. Hear me, church. This is not works salvation. This is what biblical Christianity looks like. 
This is what beholding the glory of Christ will produce in you. If all your hope and trust is in the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, the creator of all things, the one who holds all things together, the one who rose victoriously from the dead, defeating sin and death and Satan, the one who has raised your spirit from the dead and will one day raise your mortal body to be a glorified eternal body, if you are seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Setting your mind on these things, if you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, then it will transform you. You will obey his commands. Because you become like what you behold. And as you behold him, your love for him and for the things that he loves will increase. He will be your treasure instead of the fleeting riches of this world. He will be your hope in the trials of life. He will be your source of joy in the midst of sorrow. He will be your satisfaction when the sirens of worldly pleasure are calling your name. He will be your rock when everyone around you is on sinking sand. And when you see him, For who he truly is, all the wisdom, the philosophy, the traditions of men, the religion of men will look to you as it really is, empty and worthless, having no authority and utterly foolish. If you're a Christian today, then as Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. When you received Jesus Christ, you received Him as Lord. Because that's who He is. So as you walk in Him, walk in accordance with who He is. He is your Lord. The Christian who has beheld the glory of God will be transformed by the glory of God. And we will joyfully submit to His supreme lordship in our lives. If you would look back with me a few verses in chapter 1, from verses 9 to 14. Here we'll see Paul's whole purpose in writing this glorious description of Christ. And he says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what does Paul say will enable us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in a way that pleases him, which bears fruit in every good work and gives us endurance, stability, steadfastness, the ability to reflect his glory? We're to be filled with the knowledge of His will in wisdom and understanding. We're to be increasing in the knowledge of God. We must know Him, church. Not merely about Him. We must dwell in His Word so that it dwells in us. We must behold Him, and He will strengthen us with all power according to His glorious might. Now thinking again about our ecclesiology series, and what we are called to do as the church, we are called to make disciples. And Dave said in his sermon on discipleship that a disciple is a learner, a learner of a person. We are learning the person of Jesus Christ. So if this is who Jesus is, then church, the good news that we proclaim to all people is this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is King. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. To Him belongs all authority in heaven and on earth. And we dare not ask someone to invite Jesus into their life. The sovereign Lord of the universe demands repentance and faith. We don't even call upon people to make Jesus their Lord. Lord is who He is by His very nature. No one makes Jesus their Lord as if He needed their permission. The call to all people in every nation, tribe, tongue, and every sphere of life and culture at every level of authority, is to bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they will do this. Either in this life unto salvation, or at the last day, when there no longer remains an opportunity to receive His grace, and all that remains is His justice. Church, they must understand His holiness. They must see the immensity of who He is. They must understand where they stand before this infinitely holy God who holds 
all authority. Only then can they understand His amazing grace. And we as the body of Christ of all people must not minimize Christ to something palatable to the culture. We must instead proclaim all of Christ in all of His glory, declaring Him as Lord, King, a God of justice and judgment, as well as the gracious and merciful Savior and Redeemer. We need Christ. The world needs Christ, church. All of Christ. So church, let us continually behold and be transformed by the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace. We thank you that you have incredibly revealed who you are to a sinful and rebellious humanity. We thank you that we can know you. And we don't We aren't left in a place where we know you only as the wrathful, holy judge of sinful, rebellious humanity. But that through Christ you are reconciling all things and that you have made peace. Peace by the blood of your cross for us, your people. I pray that as we Meditate on these things throughout the day that it will bring true transformation in our hearts, in our lives, that we will continually behold you and that as we behold you, we will become like you, that you will change our affections to love the things you love and hate the things you hate to put off the old man and to put on the new, which is being renewed in the image after its creator. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.